BestBookBits.com presents Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World by Carl Newport. Minimalism is the art of knowing how much is just enough. Digital minimalism applies this idea to our personal technology. It's the key to living a focused life in an increasingly noisy world. In this timely and enlightening book, the best-selling author of Deep Work introduces a philosophy for technology use that has already improved countless lives. Digital minimalist are all around us. They're the calm, happy people who can hold long conversations without fervative glances at their phones. They can get lost in a good book, a woodworking project, or a leisurely morning run. They can have fun with friends and family without the obsessive urge to document the experience. They stay informed about the news of the day. They don't feel overwhelmed by it. They don't experience fear of missing out because they already know which activities provide them with meaning and satisfaction. Now Newport gives us a name for this quiet movement and makes a persuasive case for its urgency in our tech-saturated world. The written and audio summary can be found on our website, bestbookbits.com. So without further ado, I bring the book summary of Digital Minimalism. Part 1, Foundations. We added new technologies to the periphery of our experiences for minor reasons. When woke one morning to discover that they had colonized the core of our daily life. What's making us uncomfortable is the feeling of losing control. Most people who struggle with the online part of their lives are not weak-willed or stupid. Earlier I noted that we seemed to have stumbled backwards into a digital life we didn't sign up for. As I'll urge next, it's probably more accurate to say that we were pushed into it by the high-end device companies and attention economy conglomerates. The tycoons of social media have to stop pretending that they're friendly nerd gods building a better world and admit they're just tobacco farmers in t-shirts selling an addictive product to children. Because let's face it, checking your likes is the new smoking. Until recently, it was assumed that addiction only applied to alcohol or drugs. Growing evidence suggests that behavioral addictions resemble substance addictions in many domains. Intermittent positive reinforcement, the whole social media dynamic of posting content and then watching feedback trickle back unpredictably seems fundamental to these services. The second force that encourages behavioral addiction, the drive for social approval. If lots of people click the little heart icon under your latest Instagram post, it feels like the tribe is showing you approval, which we're adapted to strongly crave. Our paleolithic brain categorizes ignoring a newly arrived text as the same as snubbing the tribe member trying to attract your attention to the communal fire, a potentially dangerous social faux pas. We must fight, but to do so, we need a more serious strategy, something custom-built. Digital minimalism is one such strategy. Digital minimalism. These types of articles are common in the world of technology journalism. The author discovers that his relationship with his digital tools has become dysfunctional. Alarmed, he deploys a clever life hack, then reports enthusiastically that things seem much better. I'm always skeptical about these quick fix tales. The underlying behaviors we hope to fix are ingrained in our culture, and they're backed by powerful psychological forces that empower our base instincts. What all of us who struggle with these issues need is a philosophy of technology use, something that covers from the ground up which digital tools we allow into our life, for what reasons, and under what constraints. Digital minimalism definition. 
a philosophy of technology use in which you focus your online time on a small number of carefully selected and optimized activities that strongly support things you value and then happily miss out on everything else. Even when a new technology promises support something to minimalist values, it must still pass a stricter test. Is this the best way to use technology to support this value? This minimalist philosophy contrasts starkly with the maximalist philosophy that most people deploy by default. A mindset in which any potential for benefit is enough to start using a technology that catches your attention. Minimalists don't mind missing out on small things. What worries them much is diminishing the large things they already know for sure make a good life good. The principles of digital minimalism. Before I can ask you to experiment with digital minimalism in your own life, however, I must first provide you with a more thorough explanation for why it works. Three core principles. Principle number one, clutter is costly. Cluttering their time and attention with too many devices, apps and services creates an overall negative cost that can swamp the small benefit that each individual item provides in isolation. Principle number two, optimization is important. To truly extract its full potential benefits, it's necessary to think carefully about how they'll use the technology. And principle three, intentionality is satisfying. Digital minimalists derive significant satisfaction from their general commitment to being more intentional about how they engage with new technologies. An argument for principle one, Thoreau's new economics. Thoreau's new economics, a theory that builds on the following axiom, which Thoreau establishes early in Walden. The cost of a thing is the amount of what I call life, which is required to be exchanged for it, immediately or in the long run. When people consider specific tools or behaviors in their digital lives, they tend to focus only on the value each produces. Standard economic thinking says that such profits are good, and the more you receive, the better. It is therefore makes sense to clutter your digital life with as many of the small sources of value as you can find. Thoreau's new economics, however, demands that you balance this profit against the cost measured in terms of your life. An argument for principle two, the return curve. The law of diminishing returns can apply to various ways in which we use new technologies to produce value in our personal lives. Most people's personal technology processes currently exist on the early part of the return curve, the location where additional attempts to optimize will yield massive improvements. If you think of these services as offering a collection of features that you can carefully put to use to serve specific values, then almost certainly you'll spend much less time using them. This is why social media companies are purposely vague in describing their products. An argument for principle three, the lessons of the Amish hacker. The Amish start with things they value most, then work backward to ask whether a new given technology performs more harm than good with respect to these values. Their gamble is that intention trumps confidence. Their examples leaves open the questions to whether they this value persists even when we eliminate the more authoritarian impulses of these communities. Fortunately, we have good reason to believe it does. Laura's satisfaction with her smartphone-free life comes from the choice itself. My decision to not use a smartphone gives me a sense of autonomy, she's told me. I'm controlling the role technology is allowed to play in my life. Outsourcing your autonomy to an attention economy conglomerate is the opposite of freedom and will likely degrade your individuality. Chapter 3, The Digital Declutter In my experience, gradually changing your habit one at a time doesn't work well. 
I recommend instead a rapid transformation. The digital decliner process. Put aside a 30-day period during which you will take a break from optional technologies in your life. During this 30-day break, explore and rediscover activities and behaviors that you find satisfying and meaningful. At the end of the break, reintroduce optional technologies into your life, starting from a blank slate. For each technology you reintroduce, determine what value it serves in your life and how specifically you will use it so as to maximize its value. A typical culprit, for example, was technology restriction rules that were either too vague or too strict. Another mistake was not planning what to replace these technologies with during the declutter period. Those who treated this experiment purely as a detox, where the goal was to simply take a break from the digital life before returning to business as usual, also struggled. A temporary detox is much weaker resolution than trying to permanently change your life. Step number one, define your technology rules. The first step of the declutter process, therefore, is to define which technologies fall into this op optional category. When I say technology in this context, I mean this general class of things we've been calling new technologies throughout the book, which include apps, websites, and related digital tools. Text messaging, Instagram, and Reddit are examples of the type of technologies you need to evaluate when preparing for your digital declutter. Your microwave, radio, or electric toothbrush are not. An increasing special case brought consider the technology optional unless its temporary removal would harm or significantly disrupt the daily operation of your professional or personal life. My final suggestion is to use operating procedures when confronting a technology that's largely optional, with the exception of a few critical use cases. These procedures specify exactly how and when you use a particular technology, allowing you to maintain some critical uses without having to default to unrestricted access. Step number two, take a 30-day break. As time wore on, the detox symptoms wore off and I began to forget about my phone. This detox experience is important because it will help you make smarter decisions at the end of the declutter when you reintroduce some of the optional technologies to your life. The goal is to not simply give yourself a break from technology, but to instead spark a permanent transformation of your digital life. For this process to succeed, you must also spend this period trying to rediscover what's important to you and what you enjoy outside the world of the always-on shiny digital. Figuring this out before you begin reintroducing technology at the end of this declutter process is critical. Step number three, reintroduce technology. This reintroduction is more demanding than you might imagine. The goal of the final step is to start from a blank slate and only let back into your life technology that passes your strict minimalist standards. Does this technology directly support something that I deeply value? Is this technology the best way to support this value? How am I going to use this technology going forward to maximize its value and minimize its harm? Digital minimalists combat this by maintaining standard operating procedures that dictate when and how they use the digital tools in their lives. An interesting experience shared by some participants was that they eagerly returned to their optimal technologies only to learn they had lost their taste for them. Part number two, practices. Practice, spend time alone. Keith Lidge, often working at a simple pine desk in a barely renovated barn with no internet connection, I get an extra 20 IQ points from being in that office, he explains. Erwin, running is cheaper than therapy. 
Keith Lidge and Irwin decided to co-write a book on the topic of solitude. Solitude is about what's happening in your brain, not the environment around you. Solitude is about what's happening in your brain, not the environment around you. You can enjoy solitude in a crowded coffee shop or a subway car, or as President Lincoln discovered, at his cottage, while sharing your lawn with two companies of Union soldiers. So as long as your mind is left to grapple only with its own thoughts, solitude can be banished in even the quietest settings if you allow input from other minds to intrude. Solitude requires you to move past reacting to information created by other people and in focus on your own thoughts and experiences, wherever you happen to be. All of humanity's problems stem from the man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. Canadian social critic named Michael Harris in his 2017 book, also titled Solitude, Harris is concerned that new technologies help create a culture that undermines time alone with your thoughts. Three critical benefits provided by solitude. New ideas, an understanding of the self and closeness to others. Calmly experiencing separation, he argues, builds your appreciation for interpersonal connections when they do occur. Regular doses of solitude mixed in with our default mode of sociality are necessary to flourish as a human being. For the first time in human history, solitude is starting to fade away altogether. The iPod provided for the first time the ability to be continuously distracted from your own mind. The smartphone provided a new technique to banish these remaining slivers of solitude, the quick glance. It's now possible to completely banish solitude from your life. The average moment user spends right now around three hours a day looking at their smartphone screen, with only 12% spending less than an hour. The average moment user picks up their phone 39 times a day. When you avoid solitude, you miss out on the positive things it brings you. The ability to clarify hard problems, to regulate your emotions, to build moral courage, and the strength to strengthen relationships. 2015 study by the Common Sense Media found that teenagers were consuming media, including text messaging and social networks, nine hours per day on average. Head of the mental health services at a well-known university told me that everyone seemed to be suddenly be suffering from anxiety or anxiety-related disorders. The sudden rise in anxiety-related problems coincided with the first incoming classes of students that were raised on smartphones and social media. But starting around 2012, she noticed a shift in measurements of teenager emotional states that was anything but gradual. The gentle slopes on the line graphs charting how behavioral traits change with birth year became steep mountains and sheer cliffs, and many of the distinctive characteristics of the millennial generation began to disappear. In all my analysis of the generational data, some reaching back to the 1930s, I had never seen anything like it. Young people born between 1995 and 2012, a group twinge calls iGen, exhibited remarkable differences as compared to the millennials that preceded them. Rates of teen depression and suicide have skyrocketed, twinge writes, with much of this seemingly due to a massive increase in anxiety disorders. Denton Lewis assumed that the teenagers themselves would dismiss this theory as standard parental grumbling. But this is not what happened. To my surprise, anxious teenagers tended to agree. The only factor that dramatically increased right around the same time as teenage anxiety was the number of young people owning their own smartphones. 
when an entire cohort unintentionally eliminated time alone with their thoughts from their lives, their mental health suffered dramatically. When an entire cohort unintentionally eliminated time alone with their own thoughts from their lives, their mental health suffered dramatically. These teenagers have lost the ability to process and make sense of their emotions or to reflect on who they are and what really matters or to build strong relationships, or even just allow their brains time to power down their critical social circuits. We need solitude to thrive as human beings, and in recent years, without even realizing it, we've been systematically reducing this critical ingredient from our lives. Practice, leave your phone at home. I recommend that you try to spend some time away from your phone most days. Succeeding with this strategy requires that you abandon the belief that not having your phone is a crisis. This practice is not about getting rid of your phone. Most of the time, you'll have your phone with you and enjoy all of its conveniences. It does aim, however, to convince you that it's completely reasonable to live a life in which you sometimes have a phone with you and sometimes do not. Practice. Take long walks. Only thoughts reached by walking have value. Nitschke began to walk up to eight hours a day. During these walks, he would think, eventually filling six small notebooks with the prose that became The Wanderer and His Shadow. Key property of walking, it's a fantastic source of solitude. The details of this practice are simple. On a regular basis, go for long walks, preferably somewhere scenic. Take these walks alone, which means not just by yourself, but also, if possible, without your phone. If you're wearing a headphones or monitoring a text message chain, or God forbid, narrating the stroll on Instagram, you're not really walking. The hardest part of this habit is to making the time. It also helps if you learn to broaden the definition of good weather. You can walk on cold days or when it's snowing, or even during light rain. I'm quite simply happier and more productive by noticeably large factors when I'm walking regularly. Practice. Write letters to yourself. Every time I started a new moleskin notebook, I would begin by transcribing my current list of values underneath the heading, the plan, in the notebook's first pages. These notebooks play a different role. They provide me with a way to write a letter to myself when encountering a complicated decision, or a hard emotion, or a surge of inspiration. By the time I'm composing my thoughts in the structured form, demanded by written pros, I often gain clarity. It's the act of writing itself that already yields the bulk of the benefits. The regions of the brain that define the default network are virtually identical to the networks that lighten up during social cognition experiments. When given downtime, in other words, our brain defaults to thinking about our social life. The loss of social connection, for example, turns out to trigger the same system as physical pain. Over-the-counter painkillers reduced social pain. The social media paradox. When users receive targeted and composed information written by someone they know well, e.g. a comment sent by a family member, they felt better. Or on the other hand, receiving a targeted and composed information from someone they didn't know well, or receiving a like or reading a status update broadcast to many people, didn't correlate with improved well-being. The research found that the more someone used social media, the more likely they were to be lonely. Our results show that overall, the use of Facebook was negatively associated with well-being. They found, for example, that if you increase the amount of likes or links clicked by a standard deviation, mental health decreased by 5-8% to 8 of a standard deviation.
Reclaiming conversation. Connection, the low bandwidth interaction that defined our social lives. Conversation, the much richer, high bandwidth communication that define our social lives. My argument is not anti-technology, it's pro-conversation. A philosophy of sorts for socializing in a digital age. Conversation, concentric communication. Many people think about conversation and connection as two different strategies for accomplishing the same goal of maintaining their social life. Conversation concentric communication argues that conversation is the only form of interaction that in some sense counts towards maintaining a relationship. Anything textual or non-interactive doesn't count as conversation. Connection is downgraded to a logistical role. If you adopt this philosophy, you'll almost certainly reduce the number of people with whom you have an active relationship. The richness of analog interactions will far outweigh what you're leaving behind. Our sociality is simply too complex to be outsourced to a social network or reduced to instant messages. Practice. Don't click like. Don't click like ever. Stop leaving comments on social media posts as well. To teach your mind that connection is a reasonable alternative to conversation. If you eliminate these trivial interactions called turkey, you send your mind a clear message. Conversation is what counts. If you feel that not leaving a comment would be noted as an omission, invest the time to set up a real conversation. Practice. Consolidate texting. Keep your phone in the do not disturb mode by default. Schedule specific times for texting. When your friends and family are able to instigate meddling pseudo-conversations with you over text at any time, it's easy for them to become complacent about your relationship. Being less available over text has a way of strengthening your relationship. Practice. Hold conversation office hours. Put aside set times on set days during which you're always available for conversation. Promote these times to people you care about. Variation. Coffee shop hours. Pick a time each week where you're at a coffee shop. Let people know you are there. Chapter 6. Reclaim leisure. Leisure and the good life. Contemplation is an activity that is appreciated for its own sake. More and more people are failing to cultivate high-quality leisure, critical for human happiness. This leaves a void that would be near unbearable if confronted, but that can be ignored with the help of the digital noise. When individuals in the F1 community are provided large amounts of leisure time, they often voluntarily fill those hours with strenuous activity. One of the chief things which my typical man has to learn is that the mental facilities are capable of a continuous hard activity. They do not tire like an arm or leg. All they want is change, not rest, except in sleep. Leisure lesson number one. Prioritize demanding activity over passive consumption. Craft describes any activity where you apply skill to create something valuable. Craft is a good source of high-quality leisure. Long ago, we learned to think by using our hands, not the other way around. We live in a world that is working to eliminate touch as one of our senses, to minimize the use of our hands to do things except poke at a screen. The result is a mismatch between our equipment and our experience. People lose the outlet for self-worth established through ambiguous demonstrations of skill. Leisure lesson number two, use skills to produce valuable things in the physical world. Playing games also provides permission for what we call supercharged socializing interactions with higher intensity levels that are common in polite society. 
board games, social fitness, recreational sport leagues, volunteer activities. Leisure lesson number three. Seek activities that require real-world, structured social interactions. The internet is fueling a leisure renaissance by providing the average person more leisure options than ever before. Helps people find communities related to their interests, provides easy access to obscure information needed to pursue specific pursuits. Digital technology is present, but subordinated to a support role. New technology when used with care and intention creates a better life than either loudism or mindless adoption. Practice. Fix or build something every week. Changing your car oil, installing a new light fixture, learn a new technique or an instrument. Build custom furniture or start a garden plot. Practice. Schedule your low-quality leisure. Schedule in advance the time you spend on low-quality leisure. Initially, don't worry about how much time you put aside for low-quality leisure. Vast majority of regular social media users can receive the vast majority of value in as little as 20 to 40 minutes of use per week. Fill the newly free time with high-quality alternatives. Practice. Join something. Join a group that meets regularly in person. Practice. Follow leisure plans. Strategize your free time. Seasonal, quarterly, or weekly leisure plan objectives. Make it specific and measurable, and the habits that will get you to the objective. Every week, figure out what you can do to make progress on seasonal objectives. Schedule exactly when you'll do these things. Integrate this with your weekly planning. You might be concerned that injecting more systematic thinking will rob it of spontaneity and relaxation you crave. Once someone becomes more intentional about their leisure, they tend to find more of it in their life. Chapter 7, Join the Attention Resistance Extracting eyeball minutes has become significantly more lucrative than extracting oil. Attention resistance movement. Individuals who combine high-tech tools with disciplined operating procedures to conduct surgical strikes on the attention economy services, dropping in to extract value, then slipping away before the attention trap set by these companies can spring shut. Practice. Delete social media from your phone. Stay far away from your mobile versions of these services as they pose a significantly better risk to your time and attention. Practice. Turn your devices into single-purpose computers. Freedom users gain on average 2.5 hours of productive time per day. What makes general-purpose computers powerful is that you don't need separate devices for separate users. Note that it allows you to do multiple things at the same time. Block attention economy services by default and make them available to you on an intentional schedule. Practice. Use social media like a professional. Maintain rules to limit your social media use. Use tools like TweetDeck to seek out information. To a social media pro, the idea of endlessly searching your feed in search of entertainment is a trap. Practice. Embrace slow media. Whereas the Europeans suggest transforming the consumption of media into a high-quality experience, see slow food, Americans tend to embrace the low-information diet. This American approach is much like our approach to healthy eating, which focuses more on aggressively eliminating what's bad than celebrating what's good. Many people consume news by cycling through a set of sequence of websites. Critical to this habit is the ritualistic nature of the sequence. You don't make a conscious decision about each of the sites and feeds you end up visiting. It unfolds on autopilot. To embrace news media from a mindset of slowness requires first and foremost 
that you focus only on the high quality sources. Consider limiting your attention to the best of the best when it comes to selecting individual writers you follow. If you're interested in commentary on political and cultural issues, this experience is almost always enhanced by always seeking out the best arguments against your preferred position. The key to embracing slow media is the general commitment to maximizing the quality of what you consume and the conditions under which you consume it. Practice dumb down your smartphone. Paul traded his in his smartphone for a door of phone easy. Daniel put his iPhone in the kitchen cupboard. On most occasions, he brings out his Nokia 130. It's time to bring back the dumb phone. Tablets and laptops have become so lightweight, there is no longer a need to try to cram productivity functionalities into smartphones. Conclusion. Digital minimalism is meant to be a human bulk work against the foreign artificiality of electric communication. A way to take advantage of the wonders that these innovations do, in fact, provide without allowing their mysterious nature to subvert our human urge to build a meaningful and satisfying life. Digital minimalists see new technologies as tools to be used to support things they deeply value, not as sources of value themselves. They're comfortable missing out on everything else. Adopting digital minimalism is not a one-time process. It requires ongoing adjustments. It's not really about technology. It's more about the quality of your life. And that's a wrap on the book summary of Digital Minimalism by Carl Newport. Check out our YouTube channel with over 400 video book summaries and more coming. Subscribe to the channel, smash that like button and comment on what you think. Check out our website, bestbookbits.com, where you'll find the 450 written book summaries that you can download in the PDF version to read offline in video categories from biographies, business and marketing, habits, health, leadership, money, personal development, philosophy, psychology, from real estate, relationships to sales, to spirituality, to success, and to time management. If you're an audio podcast person, check out mixcloud.com forward slash bestbookbits, where you'll find 450 book summaries to listen to at your pleasure. And lastly, check out our Instagram page, bestbookbits, for motivational quotes and daily book summaries. Thanks for watching and listening. Hope you got something out of this. Go out there and become a digital minimalist. Take care. Bye-bye now.